Today is Epiphany Sunday, and for the next uh, few weeks in the Epiphany season, we'll reflect on all the ways that Jesus was manifest as Savior of the nations. And so today we go to our gospel reading of Matthew chapter 2 to read those events that we've been singing about all morning, the coming of the Magi to find the boy Jesus. So hear God's word from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed for their own country another way. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you for the way that you have not kept Jesus a secret. You have not hidden him in the, in the dense councils of, of history, but you have manifested his glory to all the nations in such a way that even when he was a small child, man came from great distances to come and bow down to him. Gentiles even came to worship him. And so we who are not of the tribe of, uh, the, the tribes of Jacob, we come before you now in the same way and we come to worship our King and Savior Jesus. So lead us in the same way to truth as we study your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For almost all of us, those of us who live in town or near town or close enough to see the lights of the city on the horizon at night, for most of us, when we look outside at nighttime, we look up at the sky, if it's not too overcast, we can see the moon, we can see a couple of the brighter stars, a few, a few stars. Uh, we might see an airplane. We see a lot of light from the surrounding houses, street lights, lights other than stars. But we don't see a lot of the Milky Way. We don't see a lot of the stars above us. When we get out of the city, when you get far away from major population centers where there isn't much man-made light, The nighttime sky is so full of stars that you can't even begin to count them. It is overwhelming. uh, When you stare into infinity, when you stare at the cosmos over our heads, it is absolutely awe-inspiring. And it's a rare event for most of us to get to look at that. Not many of us get to see that on a nightly basis. But before electricity, for the vast majority of human history, when the sun went down, 
You got to see it all. You got to see every bit of it. Our ancestors and ancient man were much more in tune with, with what was going on in the sky than the average person is today. Now, today, we have telescopes and we have space exploration. We get to see pictures of things deep in space that ancient man couldn't see. I've, I've seen uh, uh, photographs of Pluto in the last few weeks that are just awe-inspiring, just amazing. There are pictures of Mars that recently came out. that are, Ancient man didn't see those things and he, he wasn't able to give God glory for those things, but he did see uh, the, the things that are on display from uh, the earth with the naked eye. And those were just as uh, much of a part of his world as the sun is to ours. Um, they could look at the sky and knew what time of the year it was. They could navigate by the stars. They could not only see what was up there, but everything had names. They could play a great game of connect the dots where they recognize pictures among the stars. You and I may go to a planetarium, uh, if you've ever done that, and you see they shine all the lights on the ceiling and they, uh, they say, that's, that's a crab. And you say, yeah, I, 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 I guess I see it. Am I, am I missing something? Oh, that's a lion. You say, okay, yeah, I guess that's a lion. I guess, I'll take your word for it. But they knew these things and they had names for all of these pictures. They were commonly understood and accepted. In fact, these things have been uh, perverted by astrologists and all kinds of superstitions have been added to them. But the Bible says that God created the constellations. Job talks about them. And Job lived way before the Greeks and Job lived way before the Romans. Uh, he, he is probably talking about things that were even identified and named before the flood even. In, in Job 9, Job says, God made the bear. What do we call the bear? The Big Dipper, right? We, the Ursa Major, the Big Dipper. God made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. Everybody can pick Orion. I can see Orion, right? That one's easy to see. Uh, Job says he made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. And then Amos, the prophet Amos, repeats what Job says in Amos 5. God made the constellations. That means he designed them. He doesn't just scatter stars in the sky just randomly. He put the stars in order and, and he named them. Psalm 147 says, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. God has names for the stars. The fact that from antiquity, and I'm talking about from, from way back in human history, there were 12 constellations acknowledged as, as ruling the sky. That, that, that corresponds to the 12 tribes ruling on earth and later the 12 apostles. That's not a coincidence. Remember Joseph had that dream, didn't he? Where his brothers are stars who, who bowed down to him. He associates his brothers with the, with the stars. And of course, his brothers are the 12 tribes, uh, the fathers, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. This sounds weird to us, and this sounds strange, like, are, are, can we talk about this? Is this something? But if God designed the stars, if he made the heavens and the earth, if the Bible says he named them and he organized them this way, then it's, it's not too much of a stretch. Remember, back in Genesis 1, <coughs> pardon me, in, in Genesis 1, when God created the lights in the heavens, he said, let them be for signs and seasons and days and years. Now we understand the last few parts of that. We understand the seasons and the days and the years. Just like ancient man, the sun and the moon and the lights above us are 
our calendar. We, we mark our days and hours not by some arbitrary calculation of time units. We mark our days and hours by the rising and the setting and the position of the sun in the sky. We mark months by the waxing and the waning of the moon. And we mark our years by our position relative to the sun. Now, there's a wildness to that that's found in all of nature that we're called to wrestle with and tame. The moon is on its cycle. The, 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 the path around the sun is on a different cycle. And because we're trying to keep both in sync, we have to do things like, like put leap years in to keep it all straight. But in a very real sense, we are still governed by the sun and the moon. We are still under their authority, as God said at creation. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. We, are, we, are, we, we follow them and we haven't gotten away <coughs> from this at all. We've named our days after the heavenly bodies. It doesn't matter what language you look at. The first day of the week is Sunday. Ordinarily, the first day of the week is Sunday. The second week is, the second day of the week is, what, moon day. The third day of the week, we call it Tuesday because we have uh, our language from the Anglo-Saxon, but Tuves was the Norse god who was uh, Mars. So we have Mars Day, Tuves Day, Woden's Day, who's associated with Mercury. We have Thor's Day, who is Jupiter. We have Frigga Day, which is another uh, Norse god, which is uh, associated with Venus. And we have Saturn Day. We, 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 this is so close to us and so near that we don't even see it and we don't remember it anymore. No one thinks of Monday as Moon Day, but that was the origin. And all the days of the week are named after the planets in just about every, every language, modern and ancient. This is, what, this is how we've done it. Now, that's the first part of, uh, there, there's that part of the phrase from Genesis, um, that they're for uh, seasons and days and years. But, but there's that other part, when God set the lights in the heavens, he said, let them be for signs. What kind of signs did God put in the heavens? Well, the prophets often refer to the sun and the moon and the stars in their prophecies. God used the sun and moon and stars to teach things to Abraham and to Joseph. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel, where, where Joel says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath. The Bible refers to these things so often that we should be able to pick up on the symbolism of the heavenly bodies and how they relate to empires and nations and kings and then watch as the story unfolds throughout the Bible as God darkens the suns and puts out the moons of the earthly rulers and he replaces them with the sun of righteousness. He is the S-U-N. Jesus is the sun of righteousness. He is the day star. He is the morning star in both Revelation and in 2 Peter. So, so this means that we live in an integrated world where uh, astronomy has something to do with politics from a biblical cosmology, that these things go together. We live in an integrated world while, while moderns want strict, you know, uh, very uh, sanitary categories, where, where as Christians, we understand that Jesus is king of everything. He is Lord over everything. And so that means everything is related to everything else. And so that's why Christian education is interdisciplinary. It's why we have subjects that inform other subjects. And we see the whole world is coming under the reign of King Jesus. And nothing that I just said would be weird or out of place for ancient man 
who studied the stars and he studied the planets, believing that the whole world was connected so that when something important was happening on earth, you could expect to see it reflected in the heavens. And when something remarkable was happening in the sky, there certainly must have been a remarkable event on earth. And this is precisely what led some rulers from the Far East to find their way to Jerusalem, bearing their gifts for a very young Jesus, as we read in our gospel reading today. This is one of those stories that we've read and heard so many times that it's easy to think, well, I've got that, I understand what's happening there. But when we actually read what the Bible says, we read that when it comes to these wise men, we get more ideas from tradition and from Christmas cards than we do the Bible. In fact, even as, as you read the, uh, as we sang a, a couple of our, our epiphany hymns today, you read like, did, did, the, did the wise men come to his cradle? Did they come to his crib? No, that's not exactly what the Bible says. So these traditional ideas creep in. We have to read and understand what the Bible actually says. <clears throat> in all of the pictures and all the various images of these wise men, how many are there? There's always three, right? And they get to the manger just about the same time that the shepherds did on the night when Jesus was born. And some traditions even have names for the three wise men. Well, of course, um, we don't have three names because we don't have three men necessarily. There could have been two. There could have been 15. We're not told how many. Uh, but you don't have to throw away your nativity set. What we used to do when, when we had and put a nativity set up is that we would start the wise men on the other side of the room. So we'd have the, have the nativity, and then we'd finally add the, uh, uh, the, the wise men on, on Epiphany. When that, they finally got there. They started out way over here, and they made their way to the, uh, to the nativity. But it's all, it's all fine. It tells a story. And as long as we understand what the Bible actually teaches, and we're using that as our starting point. Well, let's, let's understand that. Let's understand the information that Matthew gives us. We know that there were three gifts, and that's why we traditionally think of three wise men. But again, we don't know how many wise men came. It could have been a whole caravan of men. We don't have any names. And from the events of the story, they could have gotten there as much as two years after the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph are in uh, 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 tough conditions on the night when Jesus is born, but eventually it looks like they move to a house uh, by this point in the story. They're in a house with, uh, with the boy Jesus. So uh, there are these wise men from the east who see something unusual in the sky they interpret it to be a sign that there was a new king of the Jews and they follow it all the way to Jerusalem. Well, these wise men, who are also known as magi, in fact, that's the Greek word underneath uh, the word wise men in our English Bibles. These wise men were priestly counselors of ancient kings and rulers. You know, Pharaoh had his court magicians. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had his court uh, astrologers and soothsayers. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, has this dream that he can't interpret. So who does he call on to help him figure out what's going on? He calls his court magicians, his astrologers, his, his soothsayers to help him, to counsel him, to tell him what his dream means. And of course, the only one in his court, the only one who can tell him what's going on is a young Jewish man named Daniel who is then promoted to the chief of the Magi. And Daniel remains in that position all the way through the end of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Persian Empire. So everywhere you go in the ancient world, every king has his high priests. He has his astrologers. He has his magicians who 
help him interpret the world around him. And they, they answer his questions. They're his counselors. You know how King Arthur has Merlin, right? Aragorn has Gandalf, right? All of the, all of the, great, all the great kings have their, their court counselor. You, you need your wise older counselor. You need your mage. Well, we find these mages, these magi, these, these um, wise men scattered throughout the world of the Bible so that in Acts, we run into a couple of corrupt magi who are holding people hostage with their superstitions. Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, Elymas in Acts chapter 13 are, are these kinds of guys. They're feared, they're intimidating, they're strange, they're mysterious. And, and these committees or cabinets of magi reviewed by many in the ancient world as king makers and king breakers. They, they thought they hold the real power in the kingdom. Uh, they were assumed to know all these secrets and look into the hidden counsels of the universe. So taking all this into account, imagine the surprise and the shock that, that faced a, an already paranoid Herod when he's confronted with these foreign kingmakers from out of the blue. Think of how inflammatory and insulting their question in verse 2 would have been when they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. That would have set Herod on edge. Obviously, that sounds weird and strange and threatening. These men have been studying the skies all their lives. They see something that they've never seen there before. Something they, they see leads them to believe that there, is, there, there are great events going on in the kingdom of the Jews. Now, what actually did they see? Well, uh, some assume or, or think that it might have been a comet, maybe Halley's Comet, uh, but that only appears several years later. Uh, some say, and many historians, ancient historians talk about an alignment of Saturn and Jupiter that, that might have come together in such a way that, that um, looked different in the sky. Um, it seems to me, though, that whatever they saw and whatever led them to Jerusalem must have been supernatural, like the cloud of fire and uh, the, the cloud or the pillar of fire that led Israel in the wilderness, because this leads them directly to the house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are. So it must have been something more than, than something, simply something that they see uh, in the skies that remains there. Um, might have been an angel or some other supernatural thing, that, a miraculous thing that God, God sent to lead them directly to uh, the, uh, the Savior. Though they initially see it on the horizon, they initially see it uh, in the sky and it leads them to Jesus. At any rate, the light of the star alone didn't provide them all they needed to take this trip. That, didn't, that, didn't, that wasn't the only thing that provoked them to pack up their camels and go. Because not only do they see this odd phenomenon in the sky, but they know that it has to have something with the, to do with the Jews. Now, remember, if Daniel had been a highly respected member of the Magi in Babylon and Persia, then he would have had a great deal of influence over the content of their libraries. Daniel would have made sure that they had a copy of the Pentateuch and the history of Israel and the scrolls of the other prophets who all pointed to the promise of Messiah. And so they all would have studied these writings. They would have trusted them. They became part of the fabric of their understanding of the world. And when they see the star, they put it all together and they take a trip to Jerusalem to be a part of, in their minds, they think this is, 
this is the biggest party in the history of the world. This has got to be a big event. Only they get to Jerusalem and they say, all right, guys, hey, we're here. We finally made it. Where is he? Where is he? We got to see him. And then Herod and everybody else, where's who? Who are you talking about? Well, the, the king of the Jews. We, we saw the star. We read the prophets. I mean, I know we're a little late, but we brought gifts. We're here. And then they said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. What are you guys on about? But of course, this is all embarrassing to Herod and his court. The people in Jerusalem and the king, the present king of Jerusalem, should have known what was going on. They should have seen the signs and they should have been the most excited, but they didn't even know what's going on. It was so obvious that the people in Persia had figured it out. And here in Jerusalem, Messiah is right under their nose and they're just muddling along as usual. Nothing's changed. Everything's the same. Well, Herod is troubled by all of this. Here are kingmakers from a foreign country bearing royal gifts. And these gifts are not for him. They're not bringing these gifts for Herod. His name isn't on the tag. His name isn't on the card. They're for somebody else. This isn't good news. Herod is intimidated, but he's determined not to have his authority usurped. You see, remember, Herod's not a Jew. Herod is an Edomite. He's from the line of Esau. So already his position is very tenuous when it relates to these Jews. And he really doesn't care about the Jewish Messiah. He only wants to keep his position of power. So he gathers all of his magi, right? His counselors, his chief priests, his scribes, and he asks them, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they all go to the prophet Micah and they say, Bethlehem, you know, like it says in the scripture, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Also, we read and they say, uh, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He's going to be the shepherd king. His power is going to come from the fact that he loves the lost sheep of Israel, unlike Herod, who takes advantage of them. Now, what could Herod have done at this point? What are his options? He could have said to these men, you know what? You guys are confused. This hasn't happened yet. You misread the prophecy. Go home. I'm the king of the Jews. By the way, leave your gold, leave your frankincense, leave your myrrh. I'll make sure it gets to the right place. There's the door. That's how you get out. Instead, he's up for a little intrigue, a little further investigation. He asked the wise men, now, when did you see this star? It seems that they first saw it about two years ago, and we, we discern that from the events which happened later. It's about two years ago. And he says, well, if the prophet said Bethlehem, why don't you go down to Bethlehem and try Bethlehem? And if you find this boy, bring him back to me so I can worship him too. Is Herod interested in worshiping this boy? Not, don't bet on it. Not in the least. He's not at all interested in worshiping his usurper. But the wise men really don't know Herod's motives. They go pick up the star again in the sky and it leads them to the house where Mary and Joseph and now the toddler, Jesus, were, were living. And the wise men, when they see Jesus, when they see the boy Jesus, they fall down and they worship him. Now, if Jesus were not God, then what they're doing here is idolatry, right? You don't fall down and worship a two-year-old. I mean, they want you to. Every two-year-old I've ever known wants you to <laughs> worship them. But, but you don't fall down and worship a, a two-year-old unless he's God, and this one was God. 
This, this toddler was God. He is God, and he is a king worthy of such gifts that they're bringing to him. They give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What, what are these things? Well, we all know what gold is, right? We've got that. But the other two, myrrh is an oil, uh, a, a, thick, uh, a, a thick oil that, that you would warm up and it would turn into a liquid, but otherwise it would have been like a, like a paste. Uh, and then in, a frankincense is an incense that you burn uh, for a sweet smell. Very expensive, very rare, very costly. So these are all proper gifts for a king. Um, Psalm 21 tells us that the king has a, a crown of gold, right? Song of Solomon talks about uh, the, the king Solomon being perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Both of those are named in the Song of Solomon. So these are, these are proper gifts for a king. A king uses these things. And Isaiah said this would happen, as we heard in our Old Testament lesson this morning, that kings bring, uh, the kings of the nations bring to Messiah. They bring him their gold and their incense and their oils. This happens. But, but this visit is just the first fulfillment of how all the nations are going to bring their wealth into the kingdom of Jesus. But these aren't just kingly gifts. These are also priestly gifts. Where else do we find gold and frankincense and myrrh in the Bible? There's one other place significantly, and that's at the altar of incense in the tabernacle and the temple. The altar of incense is itself overlaid with gold. The priest who stands praying before the altar of incense has, has been anointed with myrrh. And what he burns on the altar of incense is an incense that's mixed with frankincense. Frankincense is one of the ingredients uh, of, the, uh, of the incense that's to be burned on that altar. So here in the, in the uh, front uh, chamber of the tabernacle, here in the front chamber of the temple, you have in one place uh, gold on the altar, myrrh on the priest, frankincense being burned on the altar. You have there gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so it could have been that these wise, wise men, because of Daniel's influence over their library, had such a familiarity with the scriptures that they knew that this Messiah was not only going to be Israel's king, but he was going to be their new high priest as well. This was the start of a new priesthood. This is the beginning of a new tabernacle. And so they said, well, how do we help him get this started? We got to bring him the raw materials. What is he going to need? Well, he's going to need gold. He's going to need frankincense. He's going to, he's going to need myrrh if he's going to get this started right. And they bring these things perhaps with a view to not only him being the new priest of the Jews, but high priest over the whole world. So they bring these gifts with the intention of giving them to him saying, now, now when you put together your new temple, when you, when you put together your new priesthood, remember us, these are our gifts. And so when you intercede before the Father, when you act as advocate, when you pray to the Father, don't forget to mention us as well. Pray for the whole world. Pray for the Gentile nations before the Father. Intercede for us. It could be that that's what they're saying with these gifts if they knew the scriptures, and I don't think it's a stretch to say they knew the scriptures. Why else would they bring these very unique things together this way? Well, after they worship 
and after they give gifts, the wise men are warned in a dream not to return back to Herod. Don't give up the location and identity of the boy, but hurry and escape to your country another way. And of course, as they go, as they leave, they're going to carry the testimony of Messiah and the testimony of King Jesus back. And now they have their Hebrew scriptures, and now they understand them in all sorts of new ways in the light of Jesus. Now, what fruit did the Holy Spirit bring out of these, these Jesus worshipers now going back to Persia? Well, we find in Acts 2 that there are Persians there on the day of Pentecost, right? There are Persians, there are Medes, there are Parthians. Where did the Persians come from? Well, it could be that these wise men go back home and they preach Jesus to their countrymen. They preach the Hebrew gospel from the scriptures that they have. They preach to their countrymen. And in fact, there has always been, since this time, there's always been a church in Persia. Uh, ancient Persia is modern Iran, and Iran has uh, 600 churches today worshiping on the Lord's Day, 600 churches with about 400,000 Christians in Iran. And these wise men very well could have been the missionaries who went back and preached to their countrymen, and, uh, and there's always been a, a church there since. Well, these wise men were not the only ones warned. If we continue and pick up in verse 13. Um, now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and this is the prophet Hosea, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then he was then was fulfilled. What was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets, saying, He shall be called a Nazarene. Joseph discovers by a dream, by an angelic warning, that he has to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Herod didn't see the wise men again. But he's not satisfied to just let things go. He knows that there's a threat in Bethlehem. And so just to be sure that he snuffs out this, this danger to his crown, he orders the destruction of all the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding districts. Joseph flees to Egypt with 
his wife and with Jesus. And this fulfills Hosea's prophecy that God will call his son out of Egypt, the way that he originally called Israel his son out of Egypt back in the Exodus, where once again, baby boys were being murdered back in Egypt. And now things have flipped. Now Israel has become a new Egypt and faithfulness now means getting out of this new Egypt and going back to the old Egypt. What a commentary on the spiritual state of Israel that baby boys are now safer in Egypt than they are in Bethlehem. Now, Egypt, biblically, in Exodus, that's not where you want to have your baby boys, right? In Egypt, because that's where they kill them. But now, little children are safer in Egypt than they are in the city of David in Bethlehem because of Herod. The account of the death of these children in Bethlehem is absolutely chilling. It is, it is horrible. It is awful if you let your mind rest on it for just a moment. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, who is a mother of Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Why? Because there is no comfort. There is no consolation yet until the resurrection. This is the world that Jesus came into. This is the world that Jesus came to save. A world where kings slaughter babies because they feel threatened by them, right? Big man who feels threatened by a little child. But let's not just say that this is Herod's problem. It is Herod's problem. But all of Jerusalem is troubled. If you look back at verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem felt threatened by this. All of them are intimidated by the birth of Jesus, not Herod alone. Why? Well, you know that the serpent hates children. The serpent, his goal is to destroy the seed of the woman. Remember John, when John the Baptist comes, he's going to call this generation a brood of vipers. They are followers of their father, the serpent, the devil. They hated children just like our generation. Our world hates children. Why do we hate children? Well, children require time and energy. They require us to sacrifice and give up our own pleasures and serve somebody else. Israel isn't ready to do this. Israel isn't ready to submit to and serve their new king. They don't want a king who leads them into green pastures, a shepherd king. They're happy with the kind of kings that kill babies and serve the heads of prophets on plates. That's the kind of king they want. That's the kind of king they get. And their king is a commentary on their spiritual condition. Jesus He escapes from death with his family, but it's only temporary. In 30 years or so, Mary is going to be another mother weeping, like these mothers weeping in Bethlehem. She's going to have to watch her son die as well. Just like those other fathers, God the Father is going to have to watch his innocent son die. These little martyrs in Bethlehem are just a foretaste, just a foretaste of that greater warfare that the serpent is going to unleash on the seed of the woman. And this warfare continues today because Jesus is and always has been a threat to thrones and empires and governments and cultures. This this one little story denies so many things that we assume about the role of religion in the modern world. It's it's thought that by the secular mind that, and and even by many evangelicals, that that religion and Christianity is just about getting the inward life right. You know, it's just, about, it's just about correcting the mind and the spirit. It's only about personal holiness, just a private religion. Just keep it between you and Jesus. And why that is so popular is because it works out really great for governments, 
and corporations and empires and universities and institutions because they don't want to be confronted with a public faith. They want you to keep it tucked safely away in your brain. Just believe whatever you want to. Don't say anything about it. Think whatever you want to, but don't talk about it. Don't, don't let it influence your decisions. But a personal private Jesus is not what we see in the Jesus revealed in Matthew chapter 2. He is a Jesus that inspired some men to travel vast distances at great expense to come and get a chance just to honor and worship him. They, they could have stayed back in Persia and they could have twiddled their thumbs and said, well, well, that's a nice star and I'm sure it means something real important and maybe we'll hear about it someday. No, faith works through love and faith moves men and sets them on a path to take risks and do great things. You can't keep it quiet. And that is what intimidates and strikes fear into the hearts of pagan rulers and tyrants. That's why China wants to shut the church down. It's because it's a threat. It is a threat when people do and live uh, uh, what they believe. That's, that's you, you, so you've got to shut it down. Herod knew that such an act of worship couldn't be neatly separated into this private religious act. If there's a new king, that means that Herod is not king. If Jesus is king, then there's a real sense in which Herod is not. If Jesus is king and if he is sovereign, Herod isn't. If Jesus holds all the power, then Washington, D.C. does not hold all the power. And there's no sense living as if they do. Now, they can make life very difficult, as Herod did, but that's all they can do. They're not Messiah. And as we see in Matthew chapter 2, Herod dies and Herod doesn't get resurrected. Herod doesn't come back from the grave. And that's really good news. Jesus' kingdom, on the other hand, keeps moving forward and hasn't stopped growing. And one, one last reflection on this story, one last thought. These men who travel far to worship Jesus, they don't come empty-handed. If they were more like us, they might be inclined to think, you know, just showing up is all we've got to do, right? That's all that's required of me. But that's not, that's not how they thought. They didn't think that way. They knew that when you come before a king, especially a king whose birth is being celebrated by the heavens, you don't come before this king empty-handed. You bring your best, you bring your gifts as an act of worship. You don't do this because God is impoverished, because he's not. God is not destitute. God, God can get by without your gifts, but that's not why you bring them. This child that they came to worship is the creator of the universe. He has all the power and the resources and the cosmos at his, at his command. He didn't need their gifts, but they needed to give them. He didn't need what they had to give, but they needed as an act of worship to bring them. In the same way, when we come to worship the Lord Jesus and we bring him not only our wealth, but our gifts our resources, what we're saying to him is, God, you are worth more to me than all of this stuff that I'm bringing to you. By giving you these things, I'm giving you myself. Jesus has demonstrated his love toward us by giving his own body and his own blood to us to save us. And we respond by giving ourselves to him through, yes, our tithes and our offerings, through our time, through our gifts, our skills, our resources. These things that you bring are your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh. You bring to Jesus your gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
when you show up in the auditorium before anybody else and you make sure the sanctuary is ready for worship and you put chairs down and hymnals and bulletins and get everything ready, get, get everything ready so that the congregation can have an orderly place to worship. You're bringing Jesus your gifts. You bring Jesus your gifts when you help some of our folks who need assistance up the stairs. You bring your gifts when a call goes out for meals and you sign up and you say, yeah, I'm there. I, I'm, I've got it. You can count on me. When someone needs help moving or there's a big job to do and you show up to work or when someone needs childcare and you help and you watch their children or, or, or when you come to church events early to set up and you stay late to clean up. You're bringing your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh. When you open up your home for prayer meetings, for men's meetings, for women's meetings, for hospitality, to friends and strangers, when you lend your musical talents to worship, when you help with the audio, when you help with, the, with the, these, these technical aspects of worship and, and church life, when you pour your sweat into the body, when you build each other up with encouragement and kindness, when you send each other notes and texts and phone calls, when you meet over over lunch and coffee, when you share the gospel, when you live out the gospel in front of your coworkers and neighbors and family members, and you do a hundred other things, seen and unseen, when you give financially, faithfully, you aren't just showing up to him, you are bringing your gifts, you're bringing your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh, you are giving yourself to Jesus and his body. And all of these things come together, just like the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all come together at the altar of incense. These things are a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. He sees them, and he smells them, and he delights, and he enjoys in your sacrifices. But if you aren't giving yourself in any recognizable way, or if you do it out of compulsion or half-heartedly, or if you do it as a bribe and you think, I'll just, I'll just do this to get out of the way and maybe, maybe I'll get something in return, or if you do it begrudgingly, or if you only do it with a hateful attitude or a bitter attitude, if, you just, if you're just showing up, just, just cruising, just on cruise control, you're demonstrating how little you really honor the Lord Jesus and his body. You aren't grateful enough to give him your life. When you come before your king, child of God, when you come before your king, you don't come empty-handed. Do not come empty-handed. So consider, you know, 2019, we've got a new year. We're starting to take inventory. Okay, where's, where's my waistline? How's my diet? How's my budget? You do all these little diagnostics, right? I want you to do another diagnostic. I want you to say, what has, given, what, what has God given me? Ask that question. What am I good at? What do I enjoy and what work is there that I can do for the kingdom, for the body of Christ, in the church? What can I do? What must I do to bring my gifts to Jesus? And you do it and you put aside your excuses and you put aside your bitterness and you put aside your hatefulness and you fix your attitude and you bring your gifts to Jesus. Not to look good to me, not to look good to anybody else. Again, it's not a bribe. It isn't a status symbol, it's an act of worship. And you say, Lord, I bring to you my gifts because you are my king. And these gifts, this offering, this tithe, this talent, this time, this is yours to begin with. You gave it to me and you are so much more valuable to me than this thing. So I give myself to you, Jesus, to bless your people so that the world may know that you are king. Accept my offering. I pray.
just as these wise men brought their, worship, uh, their gifts to worship the king. So we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to guide us as you guided these wise men to your throne and that as you have given us great gifts beyond all comprehension, beyond all measure, that we return these gifts to you as an act of worship and praise. Father, inspire us by your Holy Spirit to understand what things you have given us, what abilities and talents and, and, and special faculties you have, you have provided us so that we can uh, put those into and, and engage uh, the world and your church with these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.